Praise the Lord. Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series. We're moving through the book of Acts, and we are presently in the opening verses of chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And as always, I'd like to mention, in case we have anyone new joining us, uh, the notes and the audio recordings for all of these studies, and even previous studies that we've done before the book of Acts, uh, are available in several different ways. Uh, you can go to our website at new-life-ministries.org and find the notes and the audio recordings there. Uh, you can also listen to the live broadcast either by telephone or on the internet. And if you want to do it on the internet, it's at mixlr.com and you look for New Life Ministries, uh, that's the broadcast name. And if you miss the broadcast, they're also uh, recorded and kept there for future listening. Uh, if you have a smartphone, the simplest way of all is to subscribe to the New Life Ministries podcast. Then you get all of the notes and recordings as they are added, so it's very nice. You don't have to do anything. It comes automatically into your phone. Whatever the case, um, I would strongly recommend you having the notes ahead of time, print them out from your computer or your device so that you have them, and you can also write more notes because sometimes we add more things as we go along that are not necessarily in the outline. Um, if you are following the notes, we are in part three of this 12-part series, and that puts us right at the beginning of chapter two, uh, the day of Pentecost and the birth of the church. Last time we spent the entire session talking about a very important and often controversial topic that of speaking in tongues. And let me just recap quickly. I don't want to take a lot of time again tonight because that is available for your review if you want to go back and listen to it. Jesus had told the disciples even before he ascended back to the Father that they needed to wait in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. There was never any mention about gifts or manifestations or speaking in tongues. All he told them was, God has a gift, God has made a promise to you, he's going to send the Counselor, the Holy Spirit. And you need to sit down, literally, that's what it says, sit down and wait until you are clothed with that power. And so when we come to Acts 1, verse 8, Again, he repeats, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will receive power to be my witnesses. No mention of speaking anything, just you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And I like to make that emphasis for people who are seeking the Holy Spirit. We're not so much looking for the ability to speak in tongues, We've been told to look for power. Wait for power to fill you. 
And this is not some kind of imaginary power. It's real power. And you'll know when you receive power. This is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's awesome, mighty, wonder-working power that comes upon us when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. So, in Acts 2, when their waiting was over, and the day of Pentecost had fully come, and God baptized them all in the Holy Spirit, the very first evidence or sign of the arrival of the Holy Spirit was the sound of a mighty rushing wind, the appearance of cloven tongues of fire sitting on their heads, and then the sound of them speaking in other tongues, speaking in other languages, not languages that they'd learned in a language class, but languages which the Holy Spirit was enabling them to speak. They spoke, the Holy Spirit enabled them, or gave them the words, gave them the vocabulary. And we saw last time that there's a lot written later on in the New Testament about the different manifestations of the Spirit, particularly this one, that of speaking in tongues. And in 1 Corinthians 14, we actually went through the whole chapter last time, Paul talks about tongues and prophecy, but he's actually talking about two different things. And this is where people get hung up. There is the private prayer language, if you will, that every believer receives when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, the ability to speak in tongues and communicate with God, edify themselves, and speak mysteries in the Spirit to God. There's the gift of the Holy Spirit called speaking in tongues, which is only for the church. And in the church, Paul stresses, there must also be someone who can interpret those tongues, otherwise best to keep silent, because it doesn't edify the church. It edifies the individual who's speaking in tongues, but in the church, the key is, does it edify the whole body? And if you study those verses carefully, I think it's very clear Paul wanted every believer in the Corinthian church to speak in tongues. He was just establishing order when they came together for their worship services. If everybody spoke in tongues for hours and hours in the church, no one would understand what anyone else was saying. And so, in the church, it's better to either prophesy, or if you're going to give a message for the church, in tongues, it must be interpreted. So, all of that being said, we now come to page 27 in the notes, and I want to give just a few more thoughts about speaking in tongues before we return to our story. We haven't gotten very far yet, but our story in Acts 2 of what actually happened on the day of Pentecost. But, 
it is no coincidence that of all of the members of our body, it was the tongue that the Holy Spirit took control of when the Holy Spirit arrived. No coincidence whatsoever. And immediately the scripture comes to mind in James chapter 3, where he speaks about the power of the tongue and how the human tongue cannot be tamed. Let's read this in James 3, verses 3 to 8. James chapter 3, 3 to 8. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, key word, likewise, just like the bit in the horse's mouth, just like the little rudder that guides the whole ship. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body. Oh, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. Please note those words. No man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now, James is speaking about the negative side. What, what bad things the human tongue can bring about. And we really can't stop it, because we can't tame it. We cannot tame our own tongue in our own strength and with our own ability. Thus, it is no coincidence that on the day of Pentecost, it's the tongue that the Holy Spirit takes control of, and 120 believers are suddenly speaking as the Holy Spirit is giving them the utterance, as the Holy Spirit is putting the words in their mouth. They're no longer controlling the words coming out of their mouth. The Holy Spirit is. And so, looking at this on the positive side, if the untamed tongue can set the whole world on fire with sin and evil, guess what happens when the Holy Spirit takes control of our tongues? He can use our tongues to set the whole world on fire with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says here, the tongue is a fire. It sets the whole course of his life on fire. Well, let's turn it around. 
If I give my tongue to the Holy Spirit, and I allow the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire to fill me and set my tongue on fire, guess what it's going to do? It's going to set the whole course of my life on fire for God, which is exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. Now, let me go through this one more time. Jesus did not tell them, sit down and wait until you talk in tongues. He told them, wait until you're filled with power. But when the power of God came upon them, what a different group of people this was. And we're about to see that. When the Holy Spirit came on Peter, James, and John, and all the others, they were changed into totally different people. And the speaking in tongues was the evidence that the Holy Spirit had now come to make their bodies temples where he was going to dwell, and their mouths would now be his mouthpiece. They would no longer be speaking for themselves. James talks about how the tongue likes to boast. Uh, even though it's a small part of the body, it makes great boasts. Now, their tongues were not going to be boasting about themselves. Their tongues were going to be boasting about the glory of God, boasting about the greatness of Jesus Christ, boasting about what Jesus had done in dying for their sins, being buried, and then rising from the dead. But it's the tongue that is the key throughout the rest of the book of Acts. So much of the book of Acts is going to center around what these men and women were saying, what was coming out of their mouth through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, even though the speaking in tongues was not what Jesus had told them to wait for, they were told to wait for power, nevertheless, the Spirit of God taking control of their tongues was very, very important. And if you meditate on these verses in James, I think you'll see more and more the importance of it. If you can tame the tongue, you can bridle, you can bring the whole body under control. And the Holy Spirit comes to live in our body. When we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3 and 6 teach, we become the temple of the Holy Spirit and we're no longer our own. We don't even speak our own words. We don't do our own will. We don't live for ourselves. We are now just a clay vessel filled with the glory and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's return to our story. In Acts 2.4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them the words or the utterance. In verse 5, there's a very important detail that Luke mentions. This is an important part of the story here. There were staying in Jerusalem 
God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Listen to those words. Jews from every nation under heaven. Here again, by no coincidence, but by divine decree, the sovereign God has planned this whole thing out because of the fact that it was the Passover season, and remember they counted 50 days from Passover to Pentecost. This was a very high holiday season for the Jewish people, and pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims, would come from all of the other nations to which they had been scattered. They would return to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and many of them would stay right through the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Pentecost. And let me read verse 5 from the Message Bible, because I think it brings it out very nicely. It says, There were many Jews staying in Jerusalem just then, devout pilgrims from all over the world. How interesting that God has this whole thing planned to coincide with the very day of Pentecost, where he has representatives of every nation under heaven, it says. Jews from every nation under heaven. And then it goes on in succeeding verses to list the many nations from which these Jewish pilgrims had come. Uh, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And uh, we've placed a little map in the notes. If you don't have the notes, it'll be hard to visualize this. But this is a map of the New Testament world. And this basically shows the known world. When it says Jews from every nation under heaven, obviously there weren't Jews there from America because that wasn't a part of the known world at that time in human history. Basically, the known world at this time consisted of nations all surrounding the Mediterranean Sea, which, as mentioned, would include places as far away as Libya, Egypt, parts of Asia, um, even... Rome is mentioned, Italy, um, Arabs are listed there. But basically, the map that's shown in your notes shows the Mediterranean Sea and all of these different places that are mentioned in Acts 2 are actually pinpointed on that map. So, all of these Jews who lived in Rome or... Um, all these different places listed, they had traveled all the way back to Jerusalem to be a part of the Passover 
and Pentecost celebration. So they're all there in Jerusalem when suddenly God pours out his spirit. And again, by no coincidence, as they spoke in other tongues, in other languages, they were not just babbling a bunch of goofy syllables. They were talking in known human languages, known but not learned. I hope you understand the difference. Peter was speaking a known language, maybe Arabic, but he never learned how to speak Arabic. He was just speaking as the Spirit put these words into his mouth. But there were Jews in the crowd that understood Arabic. They had learned that language because they lived in Arabia. So, as the Holy Spirit is poured out on the 120, God has set the stage now for all of these Jewish pilgrims in Jerusalem from representative nations all around the world to hear them speaking languages that they understood. It says that they were bewildered because they heard the Galilean believers, remember these were just Galileans, they'd never been outside of that part of the world, they certainly never went to Rome or Egypt. These pilgrims are bewildered because they're hearing Galileans, the ones speaking in tongues, speaking in their own native languages. Languages which they neither learned nor understood. And Acts 2.11 adds another interesting detail. They heard the Spirit-baptized believers declaring the wonders of God in their own languages. So these were actual messages that the pilgrims could understand. And they knew what these guys were talking about. They were declaring the praises and the wonders of God. Some in the crowd (coughs) wondered what all this meant. Others were mocking, saying they were just drunk in verses 12 and 13. I want you to consider something. In one day, the very first day of the church, most Bible scholars and teachers agree the church was born on the day of Pentecost. So, on that very first day in church history, God saw to it that representatives from every nation under heaven would hear the good news of the gospel. Now, we're not finished yet, because the next thing on tap is Peter's sermon, which they will all hear also. But God first gets everyone's attention in Jerusalem with this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 120 speaking in other languages. People are coming from all over the city, bewildered, wondering, what in the world is this? We hear them talking in Arabic. We hear them talking in Italian. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So, It created quite a stir in the whole city, 
And as I mentioned, one faction was mocking the whole thing, saying, these men are drunk, don't pay any attention to them, they're all out of their minds. That's where Peter enters in. Now before we continue reading, let me remind you of a few things. Peter was the one out of all the apostles, it was Peter who denied having ever known Jesus the night that he was arrested and was about to be crucified. That's very heavy. This is the Peter who spent three and a half years with Jesus, who was convinced by revelation from heaven that Jesus is the Son of the living God, the Christ. Peter, not any other apostle, only Peter was told by Jesus in that conversation, keys are being given to you, Peter, keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I'm giving you keys, Peter. And so many other marvelous revelations and experiences Peter had with Jesus during those three and a half years to come to a climax of, I don't know the man. Never heard of him. Don't know what you're talking about. And finally, the Gospels tell us he called down curses as he was denying that he ever knew Jesus. This is the same Peter now. These are the same disciples that all fled. They ran away and hid behind the darkened windows and doors because of fear. These are the same ones, but very, very different people now. Why? because the Holy Spirit came upon them. You know, in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, God revealed to Samuel that when the Holy Spirit would come upon King Saul, he would be changed into another person. Very interesting words. Changed into another person. You see, the baptism in the Holy Spirit isn't just something that we imagine in our mind or because some radio or TV preacher says we got the whole package the, the minute we receive Christ. It has nothing to do with that. This is such power that it changes you. You're changed from a wimp into a lion. You're changed from a cowering uh, Peter who's denying Christ three times to a bold preacher of the gospel who's willing to lay down his life for the same Jesus. This baptism in the Holy Spirit changed the whole game, and it changed these men and women. Now, we're going to notice the change immediately when we see the next part of the story. I want to read a very lengthy portion now, without stopping, because I want you to get the sense of what a different Peter we have now. And I would recommend, I'm not going to go back and read the whole passage in the Gospels of how he denied Christ and all of that, but go back and read those and then read these verses and look at the difference 
between the Peter at the end of the Gospels and the Peter at the beginning of the Acts. I want to read from Acts 2, verse 14, all the way down to verse 40. This is Peter's response to the mockers in the crowd that were saying, oh, these men are all drunk, and to others who were questioning, what is this? What's going on? What? How do you explain the fact that we hear these people declaring the wonders of God in our own languages. Here we go, from Acts 2, 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. Notice they're now counting Matthias, the twelfth apostle that they chose by the casting of lots. They now have twelve again. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and address the crowd. I'm already seeing something different here. There's no shyness. There's no fear. This guy is standing up, raising his voice, and addressing the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. (laughs) Man, is Peter in charge now or what? These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Quote, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Pause for a moment. I don't know if Peter had memorized this passage, if he was just speaking it through the Holy Spirit, or if he had a copy of the scriptures there. We're not told, but he's quoting verbatim from the prophet Joel. This was prophesied through the prophet Joel. Basically, Peter saying, these guys aren't drunk. This is God fulfilling his word, fulfilling what the prophet spoke centuries ago. From verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, 
freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and and Christ. End of sermon. Results. Verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, Peter warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, I don't know if you're noticing, but this is not the same Peter I find in the Gospels. Now, Peter had a few uh, good moments in the Gospel, uh, when he walked on water, when he gave his declaration that Jesus was the Son of the living God, the Christ. But by and large, uh, all of these apostles, prior to the day of Pentecost, they didn't seem to understand much of what Jesus was talking about. Many times he'd be telling a parable or giving um, a teaching on something, and they were all scratching their heads, you know, He's talking about doctrine, and they're like, did we forget to bring bread? And they just didn't get it. And right up to the cross, they still didn't get it. And 
suddenly Peter seems like he's been to some sort of a ministry school where he's received years of training in preaching and public speaking and prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, and on and on and on and on. Where in the world did this guy get this sermon? It's a tremendous sermon. And by the way, this is the first of a number of sermons that are recorded for us in the book of Acts. And any of us who like to preach would serve ourselves and the church very well to study these sermons. We talk about so much foolishness from the pulpit. Peter got right to the point. Jesus crucified, Jesus buried, Jesus risen from the dead, fulfilled prophecy, you need to repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. It's really not that long of a sermon, but man, he covers all the bases in this one. And we're going to go back and analyze it more carefully, point by point. But this is obviously a different man. And it's because of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be changed into another person. This is not the Peter that called down curses and denied Christ. He stood up, raised his voice, addressed the crowd, told them, listen carefully to what I have to say. And he goes, bam, bam, bam. This is prophecy fulfilled. You crucified Jesus. God raised him from the dead. Here's what you need to do. And the apostolic preaching that is recorded for us here, and about seven sermons in all we're going to find are recorded for us in the book of Acts. Five of them were delivered by Peter, uh, two of them by the Apostle Paul. There are some similarities that you find in all of the sermons. And if you study all seven, seven of them, you begin to get a pretty clear picture of some of the things that you and I should be including in our sermons when we preach the gospel to others. The first thing Peter talks about is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Remember, some of them were sincerely asking what's going on. Others were mocking, saying these guys are just drunk. Peter says, they're not drunk. They're not drunk at all. This is what the prophet Joel predicted. And he goes right to the word of God. And, you know, later in the epistles, Paul would teach about the importance of apostles and prophets and how the whole church is built on the foundation of, of apostles and prophets. There are several ways of looking at that. And I look at it a little bit differently now in light of my studies here in the book of Acts. Here's what I take away from it. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul states, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets 
with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now, apostles and prophets are two New Testament offices. These are different from Joel and Isaiah and Ezekiel. These are New Testament prophets listed along with the apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. So, those two New Testament ministry offices are obviously important in forming the foundation of the church. But I would also add that the foundation of the New Testament church is Old Testament prophecy and how it has all now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's what Peter is doing here. He's using the prophet Joel to begin to establish a foundation for the church. What happened here is fulfillment of the prophet Joel. And we'll see that many other times in the sermons, in the preaching that the apostles did throughout the book of Acts. So you have the ministry office of the prophet in the New Testament. You also have fulfilled Old Testament prophecy helping to establish the foundation upon which the church would now be formed. Of the seven sermons that I mentioned that are recorded in the book of Acts, five delivered by Peter, two delivered by Paul, in five of those seven sermons, they all begin by referring to Old Testament prophecy and how it was now being fulfilled. I find that highly significant. Five of the seven sermons recorded for us, all begin by going to the bedrock of Old Testament prophecy to show here's what God predicted, in many cases hundreds of years earlier, and it is now coming to pass. It is now being fulfilled. Listen to what Peter has to say about this later on in his first epistle. St. Peter is still talking a lot about the importance of the prophets. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them, these are Old Testament prophets, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. 
Just think about the case in point that we're looking at here, the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Angels never received the baptism in the Holy Spirit that we know of. Angels can't repent and be washed in the blood of Jesus. Angels aren't born again the way men are. And so, as these Old Testament prophets are now being fulfilled, the angels are looking on with wonder, going, Wow! Joel's prophecy just got fulfilled. Peter, James, and John, Mary, and all these other people are speaking in other tongues. God is now filling them with the Holy Spirit, and they're prophesying, just like Joel said. How exciting! God is fulfilling things in us, fallen humans that have been redeemed by the grace of God. God is doing things in us that even angels can't relate to through personal experience. That's why they long to look into the things that are happening now. Joel, in Joel chapter 2, we're not going to go there, but the prophecy that Peter quoted, in his prophecy, he predicted the outpouring of God's Spirit on all flesh. Or I think the NIV translates it better. This isn't going to come on meat, although that's what the word literally means. It's on all people. But notice the, <clears throat> excuse me, notice the implication there. On all people. This would take about 10 or 15 years before they were finally able to grasp that this was also for the Gentiles. Getting way ahead of myself, but we have to get all the way up to Acts 10 before the Holy Spirit is poured out on Gentiles. And most historians give us a timeline of about 10 to 15 years before that happened. So, for about 10 to 15 years, we have a Jewish church centered mainly in Jerusalem, and only Jews are being baptized in the Holy Spirit and receiving this promise predicted by Joel. But Joel himself predicted something beyond that. He predicted an outpouring of God's Spirit on all people, men, women, young, old, Jew, Gentile, anybody and everybody. On everyone, God will pour out His Spirit. The prophecy that Peter quotes, it includes a number of miraculous manifestations or evidences or signs that would accompany the arrival of the Holy Spirit. It mentions prophecy. And by the way, I, I, I like this one a lot. The very first thing that Joel predicts, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. 
You know, many of us who are parents, we are battling in prayer. We're battling in faith for our sons and daughters. Because devil, the devil has waged an all-out war on our children, our young people, our sons, our daughters, our grandchildren. No wonder the very top of the list here, who's going to be hit first when the Holy Spirit comes? Your sons and your daughters. They're going to preach. They're going to prophesy. They're going to have visions of God, of His kingdom, of His glory. They're going to see angels. They're going to hear heavenly things. No wonder the devil is fighting against our young men, our young daughters. But you know what? Take courage, my friend. This is the word of God, and it will be fulfilled, because as God told the prophet Jeremiah, I am watching over my word to fulfill it. The devil is a liar. He must take his hands off of our sons and our daughters, because they're going to do what God said they're going to do. They're going to prophesy. They're going to preach. They're going to declare the word and the, the purposes and the plans of Almighty God. And notice some of the other supernatural things that are listed here. Prophecy, visions, old men, hallelujah, we're not out of the, this thing yet. Even the old men will dream dreams. And on my servants, both men and women, women aren't left out. I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy too. Men and women will prophesy. Sons and daughters will prophesy. We read last week in 1 Corinthians 14, everyone can prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. This is going to be supernatural now with the arrival of the Holy Spirit. But, Notice in Acts 2, verse 21, the end purpose of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's not just to prophesy, it's not just to speak in tongues, or have nice visions, or dream wonderful dreams. Here's the end purpose, and if we miss this purpose, we've missed it all. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. God is about to start saving thousands and thousands and thousands of souls now that the Holy Spirit has come. Remember, the Feast of Pentecost is the Feast of Harvest. It's the Feast of Ingathering. And all those years that they celebrated the, the Pentecost in the Old Testament, bringing in their sheaves and, and all of the things from their harvest, it was all pointing to a greater harvest of souls. That's the real harvest that is now being celebrated since the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. People are now going to be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the tongue is now under the control of the Holy Spirit, the gospel is going to be preached, 
these men and women are now on fire for God, and they're going to go into all the world proclaiming Jesus is the Christ, they're witnesses of his resurrection, boldly declaring that God raised Jesus from the dead. But this is the end purpose of Joel's prophecy, that everyone would call on the name of the Lord and be saved. The same Apostle Peter, in his second epistle, he tells us in 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that anyone should perish. So we must stand firmly on this promise. God, pour out your Spirit so that souls will be saved, so that sinners will begin to call on the name of the Lord, repent of their sins, turn to God with their whole heart, and be saved. Now, after explaining to the crowd that this was the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, Peter then begins to boldly preach Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned earlier, if you and I want to be good preachers, we can learn a lot from this sermon alone. Preach Christ. Don't talk a bunch of foolishness. Don't talk a bunch of philosophy. Preach Christ. Stay on message. Talk about Christ crucified. Talk about his power. Talk about his miracles. Talk about his resurrection. Talk about his soon coming. That's what Peter did. He boldly preached Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead. And over and over and over, I gave a number of references in the notes here. I'm not going to look them all up now. But repeatedly, when the apostles were preaching to the Jews in particular, they stressed, it was you Jews who put him to death. You killed him. That doesn't sound very nice. It's certainly not politically correct, but that's the way they preached it. You killed the Prince of Life, but God raised him from the dead. Over and over you find it. You killed him, God raised him up. You crucified him, God raised him up. You betrayed him and had him nailed to a tree, God exalted him to his right hand. And I want to point out something that we don't have time to go into much depth here, because I really don't want to talk about sovereignty and predestination, and foreknowledge, although those are all topics mentioned in Scripture. Those are not just crazy ideas that some theologian thought of. The Bible talks about God's predestined purpose. It talks about His sovereignty. It talks about His foreknowledge. And one of those references is found here in Peter's sermon. Let me read it in context again. Acts 2, from verse 22 to 24. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God, I'm sorry, a man accredited by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, 
as you yourselves know. Just a side note here, Jesus' resume was the works he did. It was the miracles, the wonders, and the signs that he performed that proved he was accredited by God. He didn't need anything more than that. But look at verse 23. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose. Handed over to you. I thought that was all because of Judas and his deal with the priests. Peter has some more insight on this. No, that was God's doing. He was handed over to you Jews by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. You see, the cross had to happen. Every detail of Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion, it had all been prophesied hundreds of years earlier. All of the details are there because this was God's set purpose. It wasn't some accident. It wasn't something that suddenly went bad. It was planned by God. But listen to this whole thought. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You guys bear the responsibility for what you did. You betrayed him. You arrested him. You had him put to death. You're the ones that were there yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So the blame falls on you. But, you were actually fulfilling God's set purpose. (laughs) That's the mystery of God's will. Wicked men, full of hatred and jealousy, and doing murderous acts, can still be fulfilling the will of God. It's a mystery. I can't even begin to comprehend that. But that's what Peter says here. You did it, but actually God did it, because you were fulfilling His predetermined, predestined plan, because He knows the end from the beginning. He did it all according to his set purpose and foreknowledge. Now, in verses 25 to 35, we're not going to read those again, but Peter continues quoting other prophetic writings. You might not normally think of King David, the psalmist, as a prophet, but the Bible says he is a prophet. Many of his psalms are messianic prophecies. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was a prophet. And Peter quotes many portions of scripture from the psalms of David to show he wasn't just talking about himself in those psalms. He was prophesying about the Christ. And then finally, in verse 36, here's the clincher. Peter says, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord 
and Christ. So using the prophets, primarily Joel and David, as well as his own personal witness. I'm a witness of this. I saw him crucified. I have seen him for days now after his resurrection. I'm a witness of these facts. Peter showed all of the Jews that were present there, Jesus is the Christ, that means anointed one, or Messiah, and he is Lord. That's the Greek word kurios, which means supreme in authority. I like that. He is supreme in authority. God has now let all Israel be assured of this, that Christ is both Lord and Messiah. And because God did it, not man, God exalted Jesus to his very right hand as Lord, in verse 33 we read, that means Jesus is Lord of all. And if he's Lord of all, then he has all power and all authority. That's what the word means. Supreme in authority. And of course, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Matthew records, as Jesus was ascending up to heaven, this is what he told the disciples there, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything. I have commanded you. Why? Because I am Lord and I have all authority. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, I'm going to have to stop there for tonight, but I'm just going to introduce where we're going next time. After explaining this simple but profound truth to everyone in the crowd there, Jesus is Lord. Jesus has supreme authority. They were cut to the heart. Literally, it's like a dagger pierced them. Something cut right through them. And they're no longer mocking and laughing and saying, ha, 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 these guys are drunk. They only have one question now. What shall we do? What shall we do? You see, when you come in contact with supreme authority, you don't question, analyze, criticize, pick and choose what you like and what you don't like. You fall on your face with one question. What am I supposed to do? You know, that's where the church in America and many other places in the modern world have gone very, very far astray. We've lost this whole concept of the lordship of Jesus Christ. We basically think we're lords now. We can pick and choose whatever we want. 
to obey whatever we want to believe. We make our own plans. We do our own thing. We're not going to take orders from anyone, including God. Well, if he's Lord, that would suggest that I should be taking my orders now from him. If he is indeed supreme in authority, and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, then my response should be the same as all the Jews that were there on the day of Pentecost. What are we supposed to do next? What are we supposed to do? What is our response to this information, to this revelation that is now being given to us that Jesus rose from the dead, God made him both Lord and Christ. Well, next time, of course, we're going to see Peter has a very simple answer to their question, what are we to do? His answer was, repent, be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But we'll go into more depth next time, and then we will start to see how indeed, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, suddenly there's a great harvest of souls that are being saved and added to this thing called the church. We haven't found that word yet. We have to make it all the way to verse 47 in the second chapter of Acts before church is mentioned. But this is where the church was born, on the day of Pentecost. And literally, by the end of the first day of the church, representatives from every nation under heaven had heard the preaching of the gospel, and 3,000 more believers are added to that brand new thing we call the church. This is exciting stuff, friends, and this is what we need to be seeking. This is what we need to be believing in these last days. We need a revival in the Holy Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon us, come upon our sons, our daughters, the young men, the old, bring visions, dreams, prophecy, miracles, signs, and wonders, cut to the heart with conviction of sin, so that people are running to the altar, people are running to Christ saying, what must I do to get my life straightened out? And they get saved, they take water baptism, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. This is how the church began, and this is how God has determined and decreed that the church should continue to grow. Let us continue to immerse ourselves in the words of the book of Acts until we become a church like this church and until the Holy Spirit empowers us with the same power we see coming upon Peter, James, John, and all of the others. Let's pray tonight and thank God for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit Thank God for fulfilling every promise that he made through the prophet Joel, that this will affect 
our children, our sons, our daughters, the men, the women, the young men, the old. There will be prophecy. There will be miracles, signs, and wonders, supernatural signs confirming. This is not man. This is the Holy Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit. I thank you for the Apostle Peter and for the way you anointed him on the day of Pentecost and the way he so clearly presented the gospel of Jesus Christ on that very first day of the church and how he showed that this was fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. God, we're not begging you anymore to pour out your Spirit. You have done it. You've already poured out your Spirit. We're simply asking now that, oh God, we can have faith to receive the fullness of the Spirit and to move in the power of the Holy Spirit. And anything carnal, anything worldly, anything sinful that is standing in the way, that you would root it out of our lives and allow us to come under the influence and the anointing of the Spirit the same way these early Christians did. Oh God, we thank you for the power of God. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is available to each and every one of us. Lord, let us prophesy. Let us speak in tongues. Let us declare the wonders of God. Let us be available to the Holy Spirit so that you can manifest the wisdom and the power of God in whatever ways you have chosen us to do. God bless each and every one tonight. Keep us under the blood of Jesus. Help us in these last dark days to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We give you praise, honor, and glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.